Hi, folks. This is part two of our two-part episode on Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Uh, if you haven't heard the first part, please go back and listen to that. It's kind of a, a single extended conversation broken up into parts. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Next up, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, some of the themes in this film. So this is uh, this is certainly not going to be the most novel discussion, uh, but I think it it merits kind of continuing to have this conversation, particularly as uh, culture changes after this film. I think we'll we'll kind of get into why that is. But first off, I'd like to talk about something that that occurs very, very frequently in Hitchcock films, and that's voyeurism and vision, and uh, more, more specifically, male gaze. For those of you who are not familiar, male gaze is, um, that's a term co- coined by the um, film theorist, uh, film critic, Laura Mulvey, uh, that essentially hypothesized that the camera functioned as the view, the perspective of a essentially, to use modern terminology, cishet male viewer. Here with this film, if you've seen it, I I think you can pretty clearly see where that's going. So first off, I wanted to talk about, uh, within this context, uh, the opening credits by Saul Bass, um, who also did the opening credits for The Man with the Golden Arm, uh, which we saw um, two weeks ago. And that had a very, very similar uh, kind kind of cardboard cutout aesthetic. And here what we have is a lot of lines kind of crisscrossing the screen, which ultimately wind up imitating a, um, uh, the blinds for like a window. Right. And while this is happening, we have the name, you know, the, the title of the film appears, the name of the director, the name of the actors opening. This is what credits are. Right. Um, and I think it's so interesting because their, their names, these very words are kind of pierced, by these lines, right? By the the kind of the lines of the window blinds. And whenever they're hit by them, they're kind of slightly off center. So for example, the title of the film Psycho, we get the lettering kind of, you know, as it would be normally as you would expect. And then the lines go through and it's like the letters, the entire word is divided into threes uh, horizontally with the middle layer kind of slightly moved to the left. Um, And so this is a typically brilliant work by Saul Bass uh, because it very quickly communicates a lot of the themes of the film. I guess the most obvious here would be the, the idea of Norman Bates and the split personality. But I think in combination with the windowsill element, it creates the idea that the voyeurism is the split personality, right? The voyeurism is kind of the root problem within this character. So also after we have the uh, the opening credit, the credit sequence, our first shot is kind of of the skyline of Phoenix. And then we slowly kind of move in through a pan and then kind of cutting and zooming. And eventually we enter 
the motel room in which Marion Crane and Sam Loomis are kind of having their illicit affair, and we notably enter it through the window, right? So establishing that the film itself, the camera, is kind of an unwelcome spectator to the events that we're about to see. And then there is kind of the more obvious um, Norman Bates having this peephole where he can see directly into the room of Cabin One, uh, where he can see uh, Janet Lee undressing, right? Uh, so establishing Norman Bates as being this uh, this voyeuristic uh, peeping Tom, right, to... Uh, to kind of make a pun about the the Michael Powell film, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Another element also, the fact that the Bates home is on a hill overlooking the motel, where for so much of the film, we understand Norman Bates's mother to be a separate character. We have her in a house overlooking everything. So he, you know, he too is also the, the kind of subject of her observation. This is Further complicated when we understand the two are, are the same person. I thought one of the more interesting elements of voyeurism was the sequence in which Mary, um, pardon, in which Marion was running away with the money and she had, she, you know, this like 10, 15 minute long sequence in which she's making the drive from Phoenix and eventually winds up at the Bates Motel. And so we have a lot of shots of her driving, close-ups of her, and she's. Uh, we hear the dialogue of kind of her imagined conversations, right? Like she hears kind of the voice of her boss wondering where she is because she's absconded with the money. And during this, we keep getting shots of her and then shots of her looking in the mirror, trying to see who's coming after her. And then she's eventually, um, she eventually pulls over on the side of the road because she's tired and a cop approaches her and knocks on the window and we see his face and he has these, you know, aviator, like total blackout sunglasses. So we can't, we can't see his eyes at all. And we get this strong sense of him leering at her. And so in a lot of ways, I, I, I really liked it because it, it seemed like Hitchcock was creating the space of, of her car as being an almost like reverse panopticon. So a panopticon being the idea is that there's a tower in a, a jail in a prison and the guard in the tower can see every single cell, but none of the cellmates can see each other or can tell when they're being observed in this case it's it's almost the opposite right the figure in the tower uh is being perpetually observed by everyone else she's in she's in this kind of kind of encased in in transparent glass and i thought that was a, a very very distinctive moment in the film so i was wondering uh what i guess what you made of the theme of voyeurism here and kind of how how it relates to to film in general since you know like watching movies is kind of inherently voyeuristic well another example i was going to bring up from this movie is later when marion's sister is in the house snooping around looking for mrs bates she surprises herself by seeing her reflection in the mirror and I almost thought that's kind of almost like instant karma for being a snoop, right? <laughs> that she that she scares herself. But in general, I think in this movie and in others, voyeurism does a lot to raise the tension of the situations that you're viewing. And I think 
this is another aspect of this film that seems very modern to me. And also, whenever I watch a film and one person is kind of spying on another, right, is kind of participating in this kind of unseemly activity or or an activity that if they get caught, they could get in trouble for. The reason it raises the tension partially is because you're always worried that they're going to get caught. A lot of times the camera is looking at them, looking at whoever they're spying on. So you know the voyeur is not looking behind them. So you always imagine somebody's going to come up behind them and surprise them. Hitchcock famously always makes a cameo in his movies. But I think it's interesting that his cameos, as far as I remember, are never a cameo where he has a speaking role or is doing much of anything, but he's just kind of there. Something about that feels a little bit a little bit voyeuristic, almost like he's in a space where he's not supposed to be. I don't know. Maybe that's me kind of going off on, you know, just spec uh, speculation. But I, I just kind of thought about that. Oh, I don't. Um, I don't think that's entirely speculative because I think an incredibly important element when kind of understanding Hitchcock films because, and I guess just to just to say this pretty emphatically, and I, I want to emphasize how non-controversial this statement is. Uh, Hitchcock was a was a tremendous misogynist, really intensely so. And so I think to begin to kind of understand the themes of his films and how these things fit in and work together, we have to understand him as a personality, right? Because uh, as I had mentioned towards the beginning, he's, you know, even today, he's one of only two directors who is known essentially the world round by everyone. People recognize this name. Uh, his persona was huge. And um Again, I had mentioned his anthology um, television show, uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, which is especially famous. I think um, uh, people remember the specific episodes less than they remember his presentation of them, right? And the opening credit of him kind of coming into frame and this, you know, this kind of portly, like, rotund figure. Uh, that was a very important element. There's actually a trailer for this film, uh, and we really we don't see trailers like this anymore, uh, that has Hitchcock himself essentially guide a camera around, uh, I believe, the Bates Motel and kind of speak obliquely about kind of what the events of the film are going to be. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see perfectly harmless looking when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime he is such an ingrained personality in his work i think it's really important to address that in the context of the voyeurism and so I think, like, I like a lot what you're saying about this idea that, like, he doesn't he doesn't exactly belong in the film. And it's so kind of perplexing to see him in a frame of his own design, of his own vision. I did just want to mention a couple of things about him. Uh, one was that he's uh, he, uh, about Hitchcock, that is. One is that he is pretty notorious 
for how he treated uh, his leading actresses. So I could be mistaken. Uh, I don't want to say that I absolutely know for a fact, uh, but my understanding is that on this set, he would play a prank on Janet Lee, where he would hide uh, the prop that they used for Norman Bates's mother's body, and he would hide that in various places, like in her hotel room or in her <gasps> dressing room or whatever. <laughs> so, I, again, according to Janet Lee, that never really upset her. She thought of it as a relatively like innocuous joke, and she also mentioned she thought he might be um, using different props to try and see which one was scariest. So it seems I I guess you could say that's relatively innocuous, although like the industry has a long history of directors doing this weird like real life experimentation on their actors, which I think is unconscionable. Um, But I will say for Hitchcock, this is relatively reserved because we go on to the film The Birds. So The Birds is perhaps most famous for how Hitchcock treated Tippi Hedren. My understanding is that she she had not acted much, if at all, before The Birds. And Hitchcock had uh, kind of discovered her as a model and wanted uh, wanted her to appear in his films. But like with, with many of his, his leading actresses, it seemed like there was a pretty intense, like voyeuristic, like sexual, psychological element. Uh, and so in that case, I know he repeatedly made unwanted advances towards her and she she repeatedly turned him down and he did he did all kinds of really very twisted um jokes to her and then uh i think eventually she um uh when i guess when when he finally accepted that she was not kind of not interested in him sexually his treatment of her onset became worse uh, most notably extending the shoot in which uh, in a scene in that film in which Tippi Hedren is attacked by birds and he would throw like live birds at her and they went over that for for hours. So he was, you know, essentially torturing her. So I know we're not covering the birds today, but like I did want to emphasize that because I think it's very important to look at all of his films, including Psycho, and try to understand them in those terms, Uh, especially because he is such a consummate craftsman uh, and he is just so, so absurdly good at filmmaking. I think sometimes it can be easy to forget the elements of his film that tend to be perhaps more, more hateful or violent or kind of grotesque, abusive, etc., Again, this is kind of the long way around it, but I do want to emphasize that a lot of this situating the scene in which Norman Bates is looking through the peephole at Janet Lee, I think that is very, very close to the idea of Alfred Hitchcock looking at a monitor, looking through a viewfinder at a shot through a peephole of Janet Lee, right? He's slightly removed from Norman Bates here, but not entirely. So I wanted to kind of in in this vein, I wanted to talk a little bit about the character of Norman Bates, who is kind of one of the most famous horror movie villains of all time. The big kind of the big element of this film, the big twist is that it turns out Norman Bates has been responsible for all the murders up to this point when we as an audience are led to believe that uh, his mother, who is a separate person, has been killing people. But it has, in fact, been him because he has developed a split personality. So at the end of the film, uh, as I 
again, mentioned in the synopsis, a psychiatrist kind of goes through and diagnoses the character for the benefit of the audience, kind of explaining the context of all the things that we had seen before. And he kind of alleges that a lot of what was going on with Norman Bates was that he had kind of an incestuous, perhaps not directly saying he had an attraction to his mother, but he was jealous of her her lovers in like an Oedipal fashion, uh, or rather her her lover, and so he killed them both by poisoning them. After this point, he develops a split personality out of guilt so he can kind of like resurrect her in his mind. And he sees these murders he commits as being performed by his mother, who has the same semi-sexual, like, jealous rage because she she has a habit of killing women that Norman finds attractive. Uh, so this is the explanation the film gives us for what is happening with Norman Bates. And I think there's a lot, a lot to talk about here. And surely... Many, many essays by people much smarter than I have covered it. But I I do think it's worth talking a little bit because we've covered this in other horror films we've talked about, about kind of how, how much this twist relies on othering people. So we have kind of the othering of the mentally ill, the idea that Norman Bates has a split personality. It turn, turns him crazy and he murders people, right? We have the othering of the kind of, according to a cop in the film, the so-called transvestites, which I, I want to emphasize that like at, especially at this period, a lot of phobias of LGBTQ people were in some ways interchangeable in the sense that like, for example, trans people might be attacked out of a sense of homophobia because there's not uh, the homophobe would not understand there is a distinction between being trans and being gay the understanding is that you simply have a divergent sexuality even if it's not sexuality at all there's something happening with your sexuality with your gender that is non-normative and needs to be attacked and i think the fact that the 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 primary villain of this piece committing all the murders while wearing a dress is an aggressive move against, again, like non-normative identities, non-normative sexuality. And then there is also the the complete attack on women writ large. So kind of referencing what I was saying about Hitchcock earlier and his his intensely abusive treatment of of many people and, and his very distorted views on women, uh, it seems like he had this understanding of women as being different archetypes, right? So here we have um, Marion Crane, who is, who is uh, someone who's kind of like has problems and then makes a mistake and then is going to fess it up. So, so kind of generally not, not perfect, having an illicit affair, but she's going to make it right. We have kind of the concerned uh, sister, right? And then we have the the homicidal mother. And to greater or lesser degrees, all of these women are pu- punished. There's no sense that any woman can can take action or, or behave in any particular way that does not ultimately invoke uh, Hitchcock's ire. There's an article uh, in Cineast by Susan Girod called Hitchcock's Women, which has kind of a, a bit of an overview about like how some of the stuff I'm talking about 
here, which I think goes into more depth than I can right now. And I think that's that's worth reading. But there's a, there's been a ton of literature on how his films have treated women. I suggest you you check that out. But so I guess I, I wanted to ask you with with all this othering what does it say about hitchcock and maybe what does it say about about like filmmakers in general who engage with this and and even more broadly like how do we enjoy films like this i was kind of thinking about how we've talked before about how horror films in particular use othering so much and that that continues very much into the present time. And then I found myself kind of asking myself, conversely, since it's so widespread, how many horror movies can we name that don't involve othering? And I guess kind of as a small experiment, I went back and I thought about the four movies that we did during our, our horror month. And I found that every single one of those used othering to some extent, um, and we certainly didn't pick them out on that basis. So to go over it just really briefly, Nosferatu, so in that movie, the vampire Nosferatu is in Transylvania, so that's kind of an othering of foreigners, right? And then he makes his way to uh, Germany and, you know, spreads this disease. In Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, it's obviously, it's the mentally ill, Right because they have they feature a mental institution there. In Son of Frankenstein, I think it's a little bit less pronounced, but you could also argue that there's othering between the family and the townspeople. So there was also the character Igor, who um, is a criminal in that film, and we find out that he had been hanged, but he didn't die. So this leaves him with a deformity. And of course, that's kind of the conventional, oh, weird-looking person, is a bad person that you see repeated again and again and again in movies and stories, etc. Um, and then finally, our last movie was Don't Look Now. And we talked extensively in our podcast episode about how um, the blind woman in that movie is, of course, a seer. And then the little person is the murderer. So I just kind of thought, wow, this is this is something that's pervasive. And I don't... I mean, is it lazy filmmaking? Can you make a horror movie without using othering? And then I also kind of thought, is there some amount of othering that is ever okay? Like, for example, in Son of Frankenstein, if you consider uh, the relationship between the family and the townspeople, I mean, is is that othering? Is that acceptable? Because it's kind of shown that the family has brought a lot of trouble for the townspeople. I don't know. These were the thoughts that were kind of going through my head. I Sometimes I wonder if there is something about horror films in particular that makes perhaps makes the othering more striking because I think my gut instinct is to say that there's not really there's not really a good reason that this genre in particular should be more bigoted uh than any other because I mean I think like those examples of the films we did were really good but it's also like well it it would make sense all of our films being kind of similarly uh, dated, having, you know, having occurred before 1975 and whatnot. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think you bring up a, a difficult question because just to, you know, just to cite a more recent example, like 
I'm a I'm a really big fan of the Ari Aster film Hereditary. Uh, like I really I love that movie so much. I don't know. It could be my favorite horror movie of the past like five years. But like some takes that I've seen on it have argued that it's it's like pretty negative in terms of kind of mental health and mental illness, right? That it's actually in in some sense it is discriminatory against the mentally ill. Spoiler warning if you haven't seen Hereditary, this might kind of spoil it. But in terms of that film, if we understand the kind of demonic possession to be a metaphor for mental illness traveling kind of through through bloodlines, as we know some of these health issues can be passed down from, you know, from parent to child, this is negative towards the mentally ill because it deals with them as as being kind of like a cursed group with no hope, uh, as we see reflected in, in kind of the uh, the ultimate fate of the protagonist there. That certainly wouldn't be my interpretation of the film, but I think there is kind of a strong argument to be made for that. I remember when we'd seen it, something that I noticed is that there's a scene where Toni Collette is rummaging through her mother's possessions and she finds all these photo albums that show her hanging out with these sketchy people and she begins to realize that her mother's involved in something that we find out to be witchcraft. Um, But one of the things she runs into, as I recall, are some spell books or something. And what we see is a bunch of text that's actually Devanagari. And Devanagari is the script that was used to write Sanskrit and is also still used today to write a lot of modern South Asian languages. And that's just, uh, and that was shown very briefly in the movie, but that's just kind of an example of, frankly, I kind of think lazy filmmaking, because if you want to show something that looks exotic and strange and foreign, you just pick out a script that you think most of your audience won't really know anything about and just put it in there. Um, but when actually it's a script that's used by real life people who are not witches, you know? I remember you texting me about that. And I think that's a really excellent catch, uh, because that didn't, uh, when you mentioned that, I didn't even recall that specific scene. That manner of bigotry is, is certainly not exclusive to that film. And this, um, this came out many years prior to that, but uh, uh, the film The Exorcist and the opening sequence taking place in um, in Iraq, I believe. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, which, so, like, somewhere that uh, the American movie-going audience would kind of just identify as, like, generic, like, the quote-unquote Middle East, whatever we understand that to be as, a, you know, kind of, kind of cultural signifier... Uh, and that's where character finds kind of the, the, the emblem, the, the kind of demonic item that comes back later in the film. There's a, a prevailing bigotry against non kind of non-Christian religion in a lot of these these kind of demonic possession films. While I was in the process of watching the movie, and again, I had forgotten a lot of it from when I had seen it before, I kept thinking about how there's a lot of this karma for your bad deeds, right? Marion 
takes all this money and she gets to the motel and then she gets murdered. But that doesn't really make sense because she, after having her conversation with Norman Bates, decides that she's going to turn around and give the money back. So alternatively is the theme, sometimes life punishes you just like for the hell of it. But I don't know. Or maybe that's, that feeds into what you were talking about with Hitchcock and his kind of propensity to punish women no matter what they do. Well, I think I, I think um, kind of both the latter and the former, right? I think it, it is about Hitchcock's kind of uh, uh, infatuation with punishing women. But like I, I do think there are a lot of elements in this film that indicate punishment for past deeds, kind of re- regardless of what you have done to make up for it. Uh, because in, in some ways, like, Norman Bates himself is is being perpetual. If we again, if we understand this on on kind of the terms of the filmmaker, Norman Bates himself is being constantly punished for something that he did many years ago and then tried to make better by, again, manifesting his mother in his mind. So there there is I think I think that's a that's a good observation. I think it does seem like the film is is committed to, I don't know, I guess, establishing kind of a purgatorial environment for all of its characters. I thought, um, again, since this is such a famous film, I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about kind of what would become of this film and its its legacy, what its echoes would be throughout film and kind of how we've seen them. So this is pretty frequently cited as the first slasher film. So slashers being a genre that was like the most popular thing in the 80s, uh, Friday the 13th and the first Halloween was, I think, in 78, but the, a large part of that series was also in the 80s. Etc. To be fair, this was actually not the first film of this type. Uh, it was preceded by a couple of months by Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, which was kind of a, a similarly controversial film. Um, again, by by today's standards, perhaps not exceedingly violent, but at the at the time, the ideas were were pretty radical. One interesting thing about that film is that Michael Powell's reputation was actually ruined. Like he really didn't have much of a career after that came out because people didn't want to be associated with it. And this is, again, a little bit of background information on the production of Psycho, or rather the post-production exhibition. Uh, I saw a couple of things. So, so one of the claims Hitchcock made, he refused to let critics see the film screened before general audiences. And his claim was that he didn't want, like, the, the twist... Um, essentially Janet Lee's death and kind of the, the entire turn of the film. He didn't want that ruined. Uh, but I did see it speculated that he might have seen what happened to Michael Powell after Peeping Tom came out and decided the best bet was to get the thing in theaters so everyone saw it at the same time. Because it would be hard to destroy his career if the thing was a box office sensation, which it was. It's hard to say. It's hard to say how true that is, but I thought that was kind of an interesting, um, interesting bit of information about this. You don't think that Hitchcock, already having the by then decades of experience that he did, would 
wouldn't that have kind of buoyed him in even in the face of criticism like that? I think it it likely would have. But to be fair, Michael Powell, although not, you know, not having the name recognition that Hitchcock does, uh, was also a very prominent uh, filmmaker for a long time. So he he similarly, I think, started um, maybe he didn't do silent films i think he started in the talkies but like in the late 20s early 30s and had been had been working for a long time so i i think there i think you have a very good point but it's kind of hard to say just as a side note um because eventually i hope to come to this genre of films but there's a genre of films from italy called giallo which are kind of a kind of oddball semi-predecessors slash uh, cousins to the American slasher. Uh, There are a lot of stylistic differences. Um, Jallo films typically take the specific form of kind of a detective story and a mystery, whereas a lot of slashers, that element isn't nearly as strong. Jallo films also have a lot of uh, very similar imagery, usually uh, a knife held by by hands that are um, in like black leather gloves. That's a that's an image that recurs in that genre really frequently. But either way, I just wanted to mention it uh, because that's been referenced as having been inspired as well by Psycho. To get back to kind of slashers, uh, slashers in the U.S., uh, I think there there are a lot of people who are pretty big fans of them, but kind of the common refrain about them is that they're basically extremely conservative films, right? So this is where I think a lot of our discussion about horror as being conservative, a lot of it comes from this point. Uh, because, again, Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, we see a supposedly like villainous character right the serial killer who kind of winds up being the main character of a a multi-part saga go around and murder uh promiscuous and drug-using teenagers and frequently what happens in these films is that uh like the young women will be sexualized and then murdered. A lot of times again Nightmare on Elm Street is kind of an exception to this but like Jason in Friday the 13th, murdering women with with a phallic object, right? These are kind of recurring themes, recurring imagery that happens here. Uh, so I wanted to ask you kind of what your experience with slasher films has been and kind of how, how you think Psycho maybe fits into that. I think slasher films are a lot of fun and I've always been attracted to them at least since I was probably middle school aged I think that something that's I guess kind of makes Psycho maybe like a proto slasher film is how it has a pretty small cast of characters and hence a smaller number of of victims because as we know in later films you've got like the 10 and then it's the nine, and then it's the eight, and on and on and on. And something else was that um, when I pulled pulled this up to watch, I noticed that, I guess, by the time the MPAA came around, um, it got an R rating. And I guess I guess that makes sense. It's not, I mean, no, it, it, it would, even if it came out today, I suppose it would deserve an R rating, huh? And I, I think it's funny that a movie that's this old can still strike us today as being something that mm, yeah maybe like kids shouldn't watch 
I don't know. Sure. Well, I, I think the um, uh, I think a lot of the the themes and concepts again, like a woman being murdered with a with a butcher's knife. I think that kind of presenting that idea alone might be enough justification for an R rating. I think it's it's interesting because there are a lot of elements of of slashers. So I've actually never been that big a fan of slashers as a, a horror subgenre. You know, that being said, like I'm I really love uh, Halloween and like Halloween 2 is pretty dope also. And like there there are a lot of examples of slasher films that I I like a lot, but I think those motifs are not super interesting to me. Um, especially I think the Friday the 13th series is notorious for this because, and this is, I, this might be a controversial statement, the sort of Holy Trinity of slashers, right? Uh, Halloween, Friday the 13th and nightmare on Elm street, Halloween and nightmare on Elm street had very strong introductory films, uh, that I think have a lot of interesting things going on artistically. So Halloween directed by John Carpenter, which we're not covering that today, but like I think does a lot of interesting things with the idea of what we're talking about, the idea of a man killing teenagers with a knife and like essentially a phallus. I think that movie challenges that a little bit before that even becomes a trope, uh, which is very interesting to me um but then also nightmare on elm street which is a series that got increasingly creative but like the you know the first film directed by wes craven uh had a lot of interesting like intense imagery and seemed much more focused on again like nightmare scenarios it wasn't so much the idea of teenagers being picked off but the idea of creating these like kind of horror scapes that were in some ways free of, uh, of I guess, kind of uh, uh, standard like realism that we would see in the rest of the genre. Friday the Thirteenth did not. The first Friday the Thirteenth film, I don't think, is is that it's fine, um, but it it never really started out that audacious. Uh, and so I think that series, more than any of the others, is primarily known uh, kind of among people who talk about slasher films for its uh, its kills, right? Like how interesting uh, Jason killed this person this way and like, you know, clapped his his hands over their, their head and like their eyes bulged out or whatever. Uh, that is a real death that happens in that series anyway. <laughs> But uh, so I think that's kind of that there's a facet of horror that's really focused on those things. And I think it's interesting because it seems so crude and watching Psycho. Psycho doesn't feel like it's it's got a lot of gross and, and kind of disturbing politics, but it never feels like a crude film. But in some ways, some of those ideas start here because this film is so thoroughly remembered for its murder sequence. So I, I, I think it's a very different experience watching, you know, this versus like Jason goes to hell. But I think you can see those threads. Well, so we're uh, coming to the end of our discussion on this film uh, and more generally our discussion about censorship in films. And during this time, we've seen we've been able to kind of trace from within our gates to Psycho, the kind of rise and fall of the production code uh, in the States. So I was wondering, Monica, uh, like, how do you think this impacted filmmaking uh, in, in kind of either a positive or a negative sense? 
Well, with the caveat that I'm no expert, I think it's nice that censorship kind of allowed for a stretch of relatively conservative filmmaking. Nowadays, it not it's not that anything goes, but filmmakers, I feel like, are pretty unrestricted in what they can show on screen. And I think that the innuendo that filmmakers had to resort to um, makes the movies interesting, but also, and this is what I was getting at earlier, it also makes them watchable for more people in terms of, like, do you want your kids to be able to watch these movies? Now, Psycho, I would not show that to a kid. It would be the exception. And and also, frankly, most of the movies that we discussed this month I don't think are really okay to show, for, show to kids. Um, but at the same time, I think with a lot of other movies that came out during this period, um, they can have some suggestive dialogue um, that will sail over the heads of children, right? Um, But then there might be other aspects of the movie that makes it interesting for kids to watch so that it's the kind of movie that everybody can watch and everybody can get, you know, something out of it, something that they can enjoy. And I kind of think that's valuable. Um, And, you know, granted, a lot of these movies will also be boring to children um, because, you know, a lot of these, the dialogue will be opaque, but I, it, it's just kind of nice that I think there's, that there's a body of work that you can just turn on and not have to worry about, you know, protecting your children from. And, and I think, um, just, just, just to add to this, one reason that at least I suggested for this podcast that we kind of try to keep it PG is so that, um, for most of the episodes, people could just have it on, and if they have children, they don't have to worry about the kids, like, you know, picking up naughty words and stuff like that. And maybe the kids won't really be interested in it, but maybe they will absorb a little bit and learn something, or maybe they will enjoy part of it, you know? I think you bring up a lot of really interesting points. Um, when I kind of posed this question, I hadn't really thought, you know, it's funny. I think. I turned 17, was able to see R-rated movies and kind of in general stop thinking about censorship because like my main, you know, I figured like, well, I can, I can kind of access whatever films I want. I'm an adult. I can see all of these things like this is no longer kind of a factor. Um, And so I think it's really interesting that you bring up this idea of having films that have perhaps imposed, perhaps not imposed or perhaps outwardly imposed, perhaps uh, internally imposed limits on certain like elements and explicit content simply for the fact that not not even just that like more people can enjoy it in the sense that like children can enjoy it, but like more people whose sensibilities would make it difficult for them to experience something with more violence could approach a subject and like understand like essentially film as communication, right? Understand what the director is saying. It's, it's weird. I feel really conflicted about this because I think there are a lot of directors who make films with relatively no limits, at least comparatively. I think the exhibition of, of like sexual scenes in films is is still pretty, pretty limited, even even kind of in this day and age where like the MPAA has less power than it's ever had. And so much stuff is streaming. We still don't 
we still seem to impose uh, many more limits on that than we do violence. But um, to reference a film um, we had mentioned before, Hereditary, right? That I, you know, you never get the impression that the director Ari Aster wanted to put in a violent scene and was told no, right? Like that, that thing's pretty intense. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. Cause I think that it's not, you know, that, that movie again, to my mind was really great and really well made. But when you look at other directors who kind of perhaps not started, but spent most of their time, working under kind of more rigorous censorship and then eventually got out from under it, we can kind of see a different sort of transformation. So specifically with Hitchcock, I think it's really interesting. And this is, I'm by no means the first person to mention this, but comparing this film psycho to his later film frenzy, which came out in 1972. So by this point, the motion picture production code was officially dead. I'm not sure exactly what was going on with the MPAA as far as rating, you know, uh, G, PG, or R, or what happened there. But Hitchcock was uh, was essentially, again, especially compared to something like Psycho, was essentially totally creatively unrestrained as far as, as depicting violence. And that that movie, perhaps someday we'll cover it on this podcast. Uh, but whereas I kind of talked about Psychos being this like really wonderful experience and and going into Hitchcock and seeing you know all these tropes and it's so well constructed, Frenzy I think is a very ugly film, and I think I think it's masterfully done. But it it kind of you know it gives you that that sense of of, of nausea thinking about it. Uh, just because some of the themes are so kind of openly and outwardly twisted. So it's hard to talk about censorship as far as like pros and cons in this way. But I think at least for someone like Hitchcock, it seems like it, it his more heavily censored films were the, the more successful, at least to my mind. Yeah, I think, I think we mentioned it on a previous episode where... I think I mentioned Howard Stern, but like particular comedians are said to be funnier when they have to be on radio or on TV and they can't just say whatever they want. All right. So uh, that does it for a discussion on Psycho. I'd like to reference my sources and there were a good number of them this week. Um, first of all, the Roger Ebert uh, Great Movies Review of Psycho, which can be found at his uh, website, rogerebert.com. The Lee Pfeiffer entry in Encyclopedia Britannica on Psycho was also very helpful. The article Psycho at 50, Pure Cinema or Invitation to an Orgy by John Bertolini, which appeared in the New England Review. Uh, Susan G. Rod's Hitchcock's Women, which appeared in Cineast. Jack Sullivan's article, Psycho, The Music of Terror, also from Cineast. The wonderful Stephen Rebello book, Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho. And the most recent article by Huai Tran Bui, titled Hitchcock Psycho Uncut Version, coming to U.S. Home Video, which appears on SlashFilm.com. As always, if you want to check us out, we are... Mayday Matinee on Twitter, maybe today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram. 
If you want to send us an email, we are maybe today matinee at gmail.com. Also, if you want to support us and help us grow, we are maybe today matinee on Patreon. Next week, we're going to be starting our theme of short films with the 1902 George Millet film, A Trip to the Moon. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this has been Maybe Today Matinee. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.